Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 22. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, exploring the life of Abraham. The series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and today we come to chapter 22, and I entitled this message, Testing and Trusting. This chapter centers around a test that God gave to Abraham. We're going to jump right into it. I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety for you. This is God's word, and this is what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, the firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, 
and Ma'aka. Well, it's kind of a, a shocking passage, isn't it? I mean, we're told up front that it is a test, but it seems like a pretty extreme test. So I'm going to go ahead and give you my thesis statement up front. My thesis statement is this. Faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. Faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. Now, I think we all understand the importance of testing on a number of different levels. I mean, if you are flying on an airplane, you want to know that the person piloting that plane has gone through some kind of testing, that they know how to fly this thing. You want to know that the materials used in the construction of that plane have been tested to withstand the elements. The recent problems with Boeing's 737 MAX revealed that there were problems with the, with the plane's software system. A software fix was developed, but no airline is putting their fleet back in the air. And no one is super keen to get back onto one of those planes until they have been properly flight tested. You can design something in a computer lab, but but until that thing is tested in real life situations, you don't really know what you have. And pretty much all of the consumer goods that we purchase are supposed to be subjected to a rigorous testing. So I remember way back to the time just before our first child was born. It's more than 20 years ago now. And you know what happens. Expectant parents kind of go through this season of anticipation and making preparations for the arrival of a baby. And Ilona and I had driven out to one of those, you know, giant sort of baby warehouse places to go and shop for a crib. Now, I'd never shopped for a crib before, really never paid any attention to cribs before. And so we got to this store, and as we were looking at the various cribs on display, the sales lady sort of sidled up to us the way a used car salesman might. And she was talking to us about the particular crib that we were looking at, you know, talking about what its features were, like, you know, it had bars and and wheels, and you know how it is when you're, when you're buying something and, and uh, she said, you know, well, do you have any questions about this crib? And sometimes when you're, when you're trying to make a purchase, you, you want to come up with an intelligent sounding question. And the best thing I could come up with was, well, well, is this crib very strong? And this lady knew her stuff. She said, oh, this crib, it's been tested at up to 220 pounds. Now that's a pretty big baby, Right. I mean, technically, I could have gotten in and slept in the crib with Josh and we would have been okay. But this is what we do. I mean, we test things to make sure they're going to withstand. We test things under extreme situations and see how well they hold up in adverse conditions. That's the kind of testing Abraham experienced here. Faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. So we're going to talk about testing today. And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to six things we learn about testing from this passage. And the first one is simply that God does test us. 
Well, this is the captain obvious point. It comes straight out of verse 1 in our passage where it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, the beginning of the verse gives us a historical marker of sorts. I say of sorts because it's not very specific. It just says, after these things. Most scholars think that the events of this chapter took place between the time or Isaac was somewhere between age 13 and age 16. So it's been you know, about 10 years. But the words after these things really connect what happens here in chapter 22 with what happened in chapter 21. And for that reason, the opening verses of this chapter come as a shock. I mean, chapter 21 finally brought us the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. After 25 years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah finally had the child they longed for. Now, there was a slight bump in the road when Ishmael had to be sent off. But since that time, they've really been living on the other side of the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to them. As far as we know, they've been living their best life now. So the words of verses 2 and 3 come as a shock to us, but we can only imagine how much of a shock those words must have been to Abraham. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And those words are troubling to us, I think to all of us. And it's not our son. And we have the reader's advantage of knowing that this was a test. Now, I do need to say that this test that God gave to Abraham was a unique test. I mean, we can extract some, or extract some general principles from it that are true in all times, but this was a one-off. It was connected specifically in a unique way to the events in Abraham's life or to his unique story. Now, we don't want to assume that every challenge we face is a direct test from God, but God does test us. And this is something we see in both the Old and the New Testament. Here's a couple examples from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, shortly after the Israelites have passed through the Red Sea, they've seen God's miraculous power on display. Then we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So if you remember the story, God miraculously provided food for his people. And every day the people were supposed to go out and they were supposed to gather food, but just enough food for that one day. And the reason they were supposed to do it that way was to demonstrate that they trusted in God's provision. They were supposed to literally live with a sense of, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, they might have said that they trusted God. They might have even thought that they trusted God. But until that trust was put to the test, how could you know for sure? 
In a similar way, after leaving Egypt, the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land. So they too lived between promise and fulfillment, and they too were tested. Here's what Moses said to them. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So they may have left Egypt and set their course for the promised land with great enthusiasm. They may have thought they trusted God. But until they experienced the test of the wilderness, they didn't really know what was in their hearts. So God does test us. And the New Testament makes it clear that God tests us as well. James says it this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Someone has said that a Christian is like a teabag. Not much good without some hot water. Right? Someone else said that the worth of a soldier is never known in a time of peace. See, without the test, without the trial, you don't really know what your faith is made of. And this idea that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness or perseverance ties in with the second truth we discover about testing here. And that second truth is that testing is meant to reveal, not to ruin. So what was God's purpose in testing Abraham like this? Was he a crash test dummy of sorts, ready to be discarded? Well, I think it's helpful to remember that this was not the first test Abraham had faced. Abraham had responded to God's initial call some 40 years ago. And he's been walking by faith for 40 years. He's experienced all the ups and downs of life throughout that time. Most of that time was spent waiting for this son to arrive. And along the way, we've seen that he had moments of exceptional faith. And he had moments of exceptional failure. But all of those previous tests were preparing him for this test. And maybe as we, re- we read it, we think, well, this seems like a harsh test. But the test was not meant to ruin him. I mean, was God really going to take away everything from him and by his own hand? What does this test reveal? Well, we know that Abraham clearly loved Isaac. I mean, the way that, that God's words are revealed in verse 2 in such an agonizing pace gives us a glimpse of how painful the thought of losing his son would have been. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. As a father, I can't even begin to imagine how Abraham must have felt. This was not a simple test for Abraham. Abraham loved Isaac more than anything else in the world. The dominant word in this chapter is the word son. It appears 10 times in the first 19 verses. 
and the back and forth exchanges between Abraham and Isaac give us a glimpse of the tenderness that existed in this relationship, the constant, my son, my father. So what does the test reveal? Well, think about the big picture. Look again at verses 10 to 12, because they tell us God's purpose, or at least part of God's purpose in the test. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The result of the test is what? Well, it's the revelation that Abraham places the fear of the Lord above whatever other fears he may have had. If Abraham had withheld his son, he would have been saying, look, I I trust you, God, but not that much. I trust you with secondary things, but not the things of most importance to me, not the things I love most deeply. And this is a temptation for all of us. We're all tempted to hold things back from God. I think I've shared this with you before, but when I was doing college ministry, one of the girls in the, in the ministry was, said she was interested in exploring foreign missionary work. But as she started pursuing that, her parents responded by saying, look, we will pay you not to go. Now, these were Christian people. And they were essentially saying, look, we care about the advance of God's kingdom, but not if it involves a cost beyond our money. Not if it costs something precious to us. See, tests like this reveal what it is that we trust in most. They reveal what it is that we fear most, what we love most. Now, I know this is difficult teaching, but God's word is clear. The first of the Ten Commandments is, You shall have no other gods before me. And we violate that commandment whenever we allow anything or anyone other than God to have first place in our lives. God knows that our tendency is to worship created things rather than the Creator. He knows that our hearts are prone to worship the gifts of God rather than the God who gives the gifts. And this test of Abraham confronted that very thing. The truth is that God does not want prominence in our lives. He wants preeminence. He doesn't want to be highly regarded in our minds. He wants first place in our hearts. He doesn't want following him to be a high priority, He wants it to be our highest priority. And this test revealed that Abraham's highest priority was obedience to God above all else. It's the third thing we learn about testing, and that is that testing is a means of growth. I don't know when you last took a test. Maybe it was back in high school or university or maybe for some type of certification. It's been a while since I've taken a test, but you know, tests produce different emotions, different responses in different people. I always like to pray before I take a test just to kind of quiet my spirit and my mind a little bit. 
Now, I became a Christian two days before my senior year in high school. And prayer was kind of a new thing for me in grade 12. I wasn't quite sure how it worked, but I remember praying prayers like, Lord, I I haven't studied for this test. I mean, I haven't prepared at all. I don't know the content of this, but would you just help me to pass this test? And if it was like a multiple choice or one of those, you know, bubble sheet types of tests, it was sort of like, Lord, would you just guide my number two pencil to circle the right thing? Now, some of our high schoolers and college students are saying, wait, isn't that how you're supposed to do it? As I matured in my faith, I still prayed before tests, but the prayers were a little different. They were more along the lines of, God, I've prepared to the best of my ability. I've studied and tried to learn the material. Would you help me to call to mind those things that I've learned? Would you help me to be able to articulate them? And as he's faced with this test, Abraham fits into that latter category. Now, he's failed some tests along the way, but he's going to pass this one. He is more prepared for it than he knows. Because all those other tests have helped him grow. I said this last week, but the Abraham we meet here is very different from the Abraham we saw back in chapter 16, where he placed his trust in human ingenuity rather than God's promise. He seems very different than he did in chapter 20, where he concocted a lie about his wife to save his own skin. I mean, there he's marked by fear, not faith. But now God calls to him and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Offer him as a burnt offering. And look how Abraham responds in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I mean, he gets up at the first crack of dawn to obey God's command. And you can contrast Abraham's quick response in the face of God's command with Lot's hesitation in the face of God's command back in chapter 19. Abraham's ready to obey. But it's not just how quickly Abraham responded that's so revealing. Notice notice how thorough his response is. He cuts the wood for the fire. He saddles the donkey for the trip. He packs his knife. He grabs Isaac. He's fully prepared to do whatever it is that God is asking him to do. And again, it's helpful to keep the bigger story in mind. The entire story of Abraham is really hinged on God's promise to make him into a great nation. He's been waiting and waiting for God to fulfill that promise. Give him descendants. And as we looked at chapter 21 last week, we we saw that Abraham had to make a very difficult decision. The decision to send Ishmael away. Ishmael was his son with Hagar. That was a test as well. It's as if bit by bit, God is asking him to give away every last bit of security he holds to. And as he does, he he finds that God meets him every time. And all of those past tests prepared him for this present test. So now when he's asked to give that very last bit of security away, he's prepared to do so even if he doesn't fully understand. 
One Old Testament commentator said it this way, Abraham's response combines complete certainty about God with complete openness to detail. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he is sure of God even if he's not sure of God's ways. He's got certainty about God, but he has openness in regard to how the details of that get worked out. So what exactly did Abraham think was going to happen as he headed towards the mountain to offer up Isaac? Well, Abraham knew God's promise. He knew specifically that God had promised to make him the father of many nations and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. More specifically, he knew that these promises would somehow be fulfilled through Isaac. He was told that directly. What he did not know is how these things could be squared with this command to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. But as you read through the story, you can kind of see him working it out mentally. Look closely at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you catch that? It's I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, you could argue that he's just pulling a ruse, right? He doesn't want the the men to know what he's about to do because they might stop him. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's a declaration of faith. Listen again to verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It's another statement of faith. Again, it could be that he's just putting Isaac off, not wanting to tell him what he's about to do. But I think there's more than that. He looks at a situation that appears to be impossible. And he reasons it out. On the one hand, he's got to be thinking, look, these promises are supposed to be fulfilled through Isaac, but isn't that going to be impossible if he's dead? But because he's seen what God can do, on the other hand, he's thinking, actually, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. And the reason I'm so confident that that's his thinking is because of the way the New Testament reflects back on this event. Listen to the description from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then it says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham was a big godder. He knew what God could do. Even if he didn't know how it was going to get worked out in God's economy, he knew that it would. And I wonder what our tests reveal about us. I wonder what they reveal about our fears. I wonder what they reveal about our sources of security. What is it that we trust in? 
I wonder what they reveal about our loves. Have we learned to have complete certainty about God and complete openness in regard to detail? Fourth thing we discover here is that God provides the means for us to pass the tests he gives. Now the climactic moment of the story comes in verses 12 and 13. Where the angel, call, angel of the Lord calls out, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It's a dramatic scene. God intervenes at the last second to spare Isaac. And then notice how Abraham names the place in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now we've talked about the significance of naming in the past. And the name Abraham chooses is fascinating. Part of what's fascinating about it is that is, is what he didn't name it. The place is not named Abraham obeyed, but God will provide. So while there's an emphasis throughout the story on how far Abraham was prepared to go in his obedience to God, the ultimate significance is not in what he did, but what God did. In providing the sacrifice. It's also interesting that Abraham doesn't name the place the Lord provided. But the Lord will provide. And this tells us that the full significance of the story is not to be found in Abraham's offering of Isaac. Now there's a general sense in which this is true for all of God's people. God will provide the means for us to pass the tests that he gives. Think about these familiar words from 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, the way of escape, the way to endure is something that comes from God. God gives us the means to pass the tests and the temptations that come our way. There's a more specific way in which this passage points towards a future fulfillment. This passage helps us understand the idea of a substitute. This is the first mention, first explicit mention of a substitutionary means of salvation. The ram caught in a thicket is sacrificed instead of Isaac. Now, That idea was hinted at earlier in Genesis, but it's the first time it's stated explicitly. And this idea of a substitute became prominent in Israel's history. So as the Israelites heard this story, they would be reminded of their own Passover feast. 
The Passover feast was first celebrated in Egypt. And if you know the story, the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish. They were to slaughter it at twilight. They were then to take the blood of that lamb and smear it on the doorpost of their house so that when the angel of the Lord passed by, when the angel of death passed by and struck all the firstborn of Egypt, those houses would be spared. The lamb was slaughtered instead of them. But the idea of salvation coming through a substitute became complete in Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The language of John 3.16 clearly echoes this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So like Isaac, Christ is a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And he does not open his mouth. Just as Isaac carries his own wood for the altar up the steep mountain, Christ carries his own wooden cross up to Golgotha. There's some obvious parallels between Isaac and Jesus. They're both only sons and all of that. But we need to remember that Isaac didn't ultimately give his life. He wasn't sacrificed. And so in some ways, Isaac represents Israel or us. Isaac, like the rest of us, needs a substitute to be saved. God provides the means. And so we look at this passage now and we don't say the Lord will provide, but the Lord has provided. It's the fifth thing we learn here, which is that God does not test us with anything he's unwilling to experience. You know, we sometimes have the idea that God is distant or that he can't possibly relate to the difficulties that we face. I mean, he's God after all. But listen, Jesus' incarnation, his entrance into this broken world means that there is nothing we face that he has not experienced. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is not just true when it comes to temptation. I mean, read through the New Testament and you will find that Jesus experienced weariness. He experienced thirst. He experienced distress. He experienced grief. We're told that he was deeply troubled in heart or in spirit. Jesus knew what it was like to be completely misunderstood. He knew what it was like to be rejected by his family. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by those close to him. He knew what it was like to feel forsaken by his heavenly father. D.A. Carson said it this way, The God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about. Not merely in the way God knows everything, but by experience. See, this test of Abraham, this call to offer his only son, was not an abstract theory to God. Christian History Magazine printed a story about a time when Martin Luther read the story of Genesis 22 for family devotions. And when he had finished reading the story, his wife Katie exclaimed, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. Then Luther turned to her and said, but Katie, he did. 
Here's how Paul said it in Romans chapter 8. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has entered into our pain and brokenness. And whatever you're facing right now, he knows it firsthand. There's a final thing we see here, which is that not everyone faces the same tests. And I take this from the concluding verses of the chapter. Let me read verses 20 to 24 again. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, great names, by the way, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. Now, you might wonder, why even bothered to include these verses in, as part of the message? I mean, you might even wonder why these verses are included in the Bible at all. How do they even advance the story? Well, to be honest with you, I had never really even noticed them before. But as I studied this passage, it became clear to me that there's a contrast between Abraham's lot in life and his brother Nahor's. I mean, Abraham's story was a 25-year wait to finally have Isaac. And then even that precious life is almost taken from him. His brother Nahor's household, by contrast, was a baby-making factory. Twelve descendants listed here. And as outside observers, we might look at that and conclude it doesn't seem fair. I mean, if God wanted to build Abraham into a great nation so bad, why didn't he just give him offspring like he gave to Nahor, his brother? And we do this thing, this kind of thing, don't we? We play the comparison game. Why am I facing this test? And why does that person get to have it so easy? God's servants are not exempt from playing the comparison game. You might remember the conversation that took place between Jesus and Peter after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus tells Peter what he can expect in life. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus tells Peter that he can expect not just hardship, not just persecution and suffering, but martyrdom for following Jesus. And the first thing Peter does is he starts to look around the room. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
And Jesus basically tells Peter to mind his own business. If I want him to remain alive until I come back, that's my business. Peter does what many of us do. We compare our lives with those around us. Did we draw the short straw or the long straw? I mean, if I have to go through all this, how come they don't? You've asked those types of questions, haven't you? There's a passage in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy that I think beautifully illustrates this point. The boy, Shasta, is conversing with the Christ figure, the lion, Aslan. And as Aslan recounts his own sovereign workings in Shasta's life, how he was the lion who drove the jackals away while Shasta slept, he was the one who comforted him among the tombs, and the one who propelled the boat that carried him to shore to receive help. As Shasta listens to all of that and reflects on it, he has a question about his friend Avaris, or Erevis. Then it was you who wounded Erevis. It was I. But what for? Child, said the lion, I am telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. So listen, you you might be experiencing what seems like an extreme test right now. And you might feel as though this is not fair because you're the only one who seems to have to endure it. But not everyone is tested the same way. We often have no idea what God might be doing in the midst of our trials. I mean, Abraham's one son looked pretty meager in comparison to Nahor's 12. But what God did through that line is nothing short of astounding. So don't be fooled by appearances. God is able to do so much with so little. Now, as I think about the comparison between Abraham's line and Nahor's line, I can't help but think of the parable that Jesus told. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest, come and make nests in its branches. So we have to have this trust, this confidence that what we see right now is not the full picture. And we may not know exactly what God is doing through the tests that we face. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you today for your word. We thank you for its relevance to our lives every single day. God, we thank you that even as we think about our own lives, even as we face different tests in our lives, we know that your tests are meant to reveal things, not to ruin us. God, we don't always understand your ways, but we have confidence in you and your goodness. And so we place our trust in you. God, I pray today for anyone who is watching or listening and who may be in the midst of a difficult situation and just needs to call out to you and turn their life over to you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, minister to them? Would they find in you the one who has entered into this broken world and experienced all that we experience? God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.